All aboard the MBIT Podcast with Seamus Madan. Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of the MBIT Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Madan, and today, Rebecca Caden is a partner at the famed venture capital firm Union Square Ventures, which is based in New York City and is known for its thesis-driven investing, investing in companies like Twitter, Polygon, Coinbase, Stash, Duolingo, and more. So first off, thank you, Rebecca, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's first start off with your journey, getting interested in venture. I noticed you went to Harvard for undergrad and then decided to go to Stanford to explore your interest in business. So how did you first get interested in venture capital? Sure. So I was not on my radar as an undergrad in college. I was a journalist and and really enjoyed it. But eventually I made my way to business school, still pretty unclear on what I wanted to do and became close while at Stanford with a mentor named Bill Campbell, who I don't know if, if you're familiar with, but he passed yeah, away a mentored years ago. Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt and a couple other folks. Yeah. Exactly. So on the like one end of the spectrum, very, very far end, right? He's mentoring Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt and all these kind of big tech people. And on the way, 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 way under other end of the spectrum, he's teaching classes at Stanford. And I get to know him as a student there, very unclear of what I wanted to do. Got to know him, started talking to him about it. And he said, you know, I think you should try being a VC. I have a people orientation. I'm pretty curious. I'm a learner. I think he thought, you know, why not give it a shot? Maybe it'll stick and you'll like it. The worst that happens is you learn a lot about different kinds of models and early stage companies. And maybe you go to one of those after school. So he made an introduction to a firm on the West Coast called Maveron, someone named Dan Levitan, who runs that firm. And I wound up joining Maveron first as an intern while I was in school, joined when I graduated and did the whole kind of work up there of associate principal, partner, general partner, and then joined the partnership here at USV about five plus years ago. Gotcha. And what was your experience like over at Maveron? And then why transition over to Union Square Ventures? Sure. My, my experience at Mavron was fantastic. I think Mavron has a real mentorship culture. And Dan in particular, who runs that firm, is both focused on and very good at spotting and training young talent in what venture capital really is and, and how to learn the business. And the belief, you know, there's lots of roads into this. I think that's one of the things I like about venture is there isn't a cookie cutter path or a set, you know, checklist. But um, you still have to learn it. And I'm a believer that an apprenticeship model is one way to do that. And so I was very lucky to have that there. So so had a great experience, learned a lot about consumer technology investing, and then got to know the partnership at USV. I'm a New Yorker originally. I was living on the West Coast. So moving back to Manhattan was a was a big draw for me. And USV is a unique unique firm and unique group of people. I think we do things a little bit differently. It's a very kind of thesis and thought-based approach to venture. It's kind of dedicated and methodical. Sometimes I call it kind of, it's a little intellectually indulgent, which I really like. And it's a unique group of partners who I think really see eye to eye on how we want to do this business. And so as I got to know them and had a chance to join them, I was lucky to do so. Definitely. And I also grew up in, in New York City for the first few years of my life when I was a toddler. And I noticed it's a very fast paced and exciting culture to be in. So I definitely see that. But as being an investor in one of the largest uh, VC firms in New York City and seeing many deals a year, what are some of the trends that you're catching on to? We look for businesses that have fundamental network effects and that we think can grow 
bottom up and create meaningful networks. We're also interested in what can be built on top of those networks, particularly that can broaden access. How can you leverage network effects to expand value and decrease cost? Some places we think that's particularly applicable these days, financial services, right? That's been a market that's been kind of structurally exclusionary or favors the top. But we believe that technology and networks can broaden that significantly. Learning is another one. You know, how we learn has really not changed in many decades. And technology is opening that up in really significant and exciting ways. What we call well-being, which means healthcare, which is, you know, in vital need of new forms of delivery, communication, care, but also more broadly, how do we create well-being in the world? That means fun, that means connection, that means belonging. Those are themes that we're you know, particularly going after the models vary. I've been really focused on a whole bunch of B2B marketplaces, but they're often around those themes. On the other hand, we can do consumer businesses. So that's that's kind of the thesis we've been digging into. You know, about 20% of our fund goes into Web3 and has for the last decade or so. And then we have a designated climate fund where we're investing in mitigation and adaptation related to the climate crisis. Gotcha. And you mentioned network effects, for example, with LinkedIn. What are some of the ways that over at Union Square Ventures, you're analyzing and from a numerical standpoint, if a company can have those network effects? More important than like pure speed of growth is the combination of high quality growth. And that does relate to networks and and marketplaces. We're interested in bottom up networks because of two things. One, at their best, they create growth, right? Because the marketplace is more powerful the larger it gets, whether that's through supply lockup or a data effect. There's a whole bunch of different reasons you can have a network, but inherently, the bigger it is, the more powerful it is, right? So that creates scale because ideally, the supply leads demand to do that, but it also creates defensibility, right? It's harder to spin something else up if your network is gaining strength over time. We're interested in what is fundamental strong growth that's going to create enduring high quality and capital efficient businesses. Okay. And then having a strong founding team can be really essential to scaling and growing a company in an industry. At the early stages, when I talked with Spencer Raskoff, the former CEO of Zillow, he mentioned how it's really about product. But later down the road, his role in the company transitioned to one being from a product role to building and scaling teams at scale. So what are some of the things that you use to determine in a meeting if the founder has the ability to create a scalable team over time, despite never doing it before? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And and I think ultimately, it's the number one thing that matters. And the pattern that you just described and, and Spencer Raskoff, you know, seems like he also described is, is the one we see the most, right? Which is we tend to back very product-centric founders. And at the beginning in that seed in Series A, that's what they're doing and living and breathing. And they are the product. Oftentimes, they are the head of product, almost always. And then over time, it evolves in that they're much more managers, right? They're building teams and they, the talent magnet becomes more important than anything else. At the best, they still are a guiding light of the product. But if they can't attract and retain the best talent, the rest starts to not matter. And that's really hard to spot because it's a very different job than running product at a very early stage company. So how do we do it? What you want to see is some evidence, even in very early days, that they're getting people on board. Maybe it's not as full-time hires. Maybe it's not as you know their head of sales. But do they have an ability to get people in the tent before it's obvious? 
Do they know how to sell their story? Are they a great storyteller? Do they get that narrative? Do they make you believe the things that they haven't proven yet? I think that's one of the most important things because it's not only about building teams. Founders need to do that over and over. They're going to do that to the partners, to their you know customers, to the team, to the press, to everyone, right? And that ability to tell that story that just makes you want to jump on before it's obvious, I think, is really gold and it's really hard. And in terms of telling stories, you know, we brought this up with Hunter Walk in terms of his most memorable stories. But I'm curious, after seeing thousands of pitch meetings, what would you say are your most memorable stories as an investor and why? Ooh, great question. Most memorable stories. I don't know. It's so easy in retrospect, right? To just like pick the best (laughs) companies and be like, that sounded like a great story. And we all know that that's not always how it goes, but I'm trying to think of a couple of really good ones. Okay. Let's think of some. One thing that I really, really love are people that can make really complex things sound very, very simple. I I used to think when I started in venture that when people made complex things complex, I actually just didn't understand them. And, and that was reasonable. I probably did it. But over time, I realized that the best founders make complex things dead simple. And so I think about a company like Remora, right, which is doing carbon capture on the back of semi-trucks. It is wildly hard to do that, right? The technology there is still in progress and, and it's challenging. But I remember Paul pitching that company and you're like, I get this and this makes total sense. And you just clicks. And that's that storytelling that's so, I think, so gold. Someone I think that's always been really, really awesome at that is, is Brandon, who's the CEO of Stash. Stash is, Stash is a consumer fintech company. USV got involved in 2017. I think, but I had known him before that at, at Mavron. And he always was so crisp on the idea that financial services is too complicated and the ability to make it dead simple for people to understand as a tool to help them rather than to confuse them was the unlock. And I think that being able to make messaging resonate like that is such an important skill. And I've seen it kind of pay forward in, in both of those examples and others. Gotcha. And then what do you think are some of the ways founders can be better at telling stories and make it easy to understand for a VC or pretty much anybody who their target audience is? Um, I think there's a couple of things. One is like, oftentimes these companies, especially in early days, are a problem of elevations, right? Because there's so many elevations happening. There's the highest level, which is what is the problem that we're solving? What is the dream? And in some ways, if you don't buy the dream, the mechanics of how to get there aren't really ever going to matter. And so the first thing that I think the best storytellers do is get you hooked on that dream. It makes you believe that this is a problem we're solving and that their image of what it's going to look like in the end state is worth getting to. And then once they have that buy-in, they start ticking away at those questions that come up in your mind before sometimes you've even had a chance to think of them. And so those are how it happens, those mechanics. And it's this flow of how to balance those elevations of the big picture and the detailed execution that I think the best storytellers do so well. 
Gotcha. And I guess before the meetings even take place, I know warm intros can be super helpful in venture capital and probably looked at more than the cold emails. But there are a lot of founders who might not have the connections to reach some of these VCs and they use a lot of cold emails. And I'm sure you've gotten thousands of them over the years. What do you think stands out, the top three things that a founder can do, I guess, to alter their cold email to better catch the attention of a VC on what they are pitching? Yeah, I'm I think the biggest one, well, I think there's a few, three is a good number. One is keep it short and concise. People don't read cold, very long emails and you'll be surprised at how many things are many paragraphs long. Be able to tell it really concisely to get the hook. The second is make it personalized. If it feels like you're spamming everyone out there, then I don't feel like there's a reason that USV needs to do it. You know, even if it's great, make it clear why you thought this was the right fit for us. We publish lots of things about what we're looking for, you know, how we approach investing. We we try very hard to be proactive about getting it out there. Read them and respond to why it fits into that, you know, world. I know founders are busy, but you're looking for the right fit and, and you got to stand out in that way. And the third, without being gimmicky, find the hook. If it's that you're growing quickly, show that. If it's that you have a different approach to something that's been tried, but you're going to do it better, make that clear really up front. You want to make sure the meat of what you're saying to stand out comes across very quickly. Definitely. And in terms of very competitive industries, if there's a founder that might be pitching you or someone over at Union Score Ventures, what are some of the things that you look for in terms of the, the founding team that would say, hey, this is the team we want to go with for this industry? We definitely gravitate towards product centricity. We're always good if there is, you know, a more financial team approaching a category and a more product oriented team approaching a category. Nine out of ten times, we're going to go with the product oriented team. We just have that kind of ethos that we we want to back kind of product driven approaches. The second is there has to be a reason in a competitive industry that you're going to win it, right? That. Why are you advantaged? What do you see differently? What access do you have differently? What experience do you have differently? It doesn't have to be all of those things, but if a whole bunch of teams are going to go after it, why is there fit between the team approaching the problem and the problem that they're approaching? And you want to be really clear both to yourself and to investors on what that is. Gotcha. And to wrap it up here, what's exciting for you next, whether that be in the venture space or in terms of companies or industries that you are looking at? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of things. Look, the market is in chaos. It's more volatile than I've ever seen in my career and and many others have too. But I'm cognizant that in those moments, new platforms are built that are really powerful, that solve problems for people in need and that that broadening access thesis resonates in a different way. I'm excited about a capital efficient approach to building companies that I think we're seeing and a focus on the kind of fundamentals in it from a company building perspective. Thematically, I think we're seeing how America learns fracture in front of us, and that opens up massive opportunity to build new platforms. I think the extent of the climate crisis is only accelerating, and we're just cracking the way that software and technology can impact both adaptation and mitigation in it. We're at the really beginning edges of that. And and there's a lot to be done and it's important. And there are really, really smart people going after it. I'm excited about the talent that's going into it. So those are some of the things we're excited about. 
Definitely. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you very much, Rebecca, for taking the time to join the podcast. And I'll have a link posted to Rebecca's page over at Unicorn Ventures and their website for any founders interested in checking them out. All right, everyone, that wraps it up. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And thank you, Rebecca, for taking the time to join the show. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.